As we take a step back, we look around us and we uh, we were talking earlier about the reluctance of some Canadians to go to emergency centers and emergency wards at hospitals uh, when they perhaps should be because there are situations and conditions requiring a look by a doc. Many of them are staying home out of A, fear of contracting the COVID virus and also B, out of a kind of a Canadian sense of politeness about, you know, not being in the way because we know what the current pandemic is about and and the and the kind of focus that the hospital system has for that still emergency room doctors are saying come on if it's a medical emergency for crying out loud go to the hospital that's what it's for so what do we do if we have a dental emergency suppose on this gorgeous easter sunday we bite into an egg and crack all of a sudden we got a toothache the dentists as many of us understand are closed. So where do we go? What's the story? We're fortunate to have Dr. Bruce Ward joining us this morning. Dr. Ward is with the BC Dental Association. Good morning, Dr. Ward. Hi, Sterling. Hi, can you hear me okay? I got you loud and clear now. I appreciate that. Wrong button Great. on my on my end here, Bruce. <laughs> Sorry about that. So okay. what do we do? First of all, let's let's talk about the status of dentists in BC. Are all offices closed or are there some emergency options? Oh, the, the vast majority of offices are closed right now. We're um, we're under an order from the uh, from the or we're under a strong recommendation from the uh, provincial health officer to not treat anything that's non-essential. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as a result, uh, most offices are closed uh, due to a lack of personal protective equipment, sure. but also due to the fact that that um, they really want to stop the spread of the virus and and keep it as uh, keep it as low as possible. So. Most uh, most offices are closed right now. Okay, so if the but we you, there must be some arrangements for now. I, I did take a look at the notice that the uh, dental association uh, put out a week or so ago. Uh, COVID nineteen information for dental patients. But uh, the one thing that I did notice was uh, if indeed you do have an emergency, you should call your dentist's office, and uh, they'll at least yeah. have, they'll put you in some kind of conduit where you can get looked at. Well, actually, the, the the first place to start is to call your local is to call your dentist okay. because what what will happen what will happen is they'll be a they'll they'll spend some time with you on the phone first of all determining your physical health but also determining your dental problem uh, what it is that um, what it is that you're calling for uh, there's there's a, a a true dental emergency would be one where you have a swelling that's going to stop you from being able to breathe yeah. or you've got uncontrolled bleeding or you had a facial fracture, something that would get in the way of your, uh, that was that serious and needs to be treated. Those are true, true dental emergencies. Right. Um, you know, a, a toothache or broken tooth or uh, swelling on the gum, those things can usually be managed by phone, by, by your own dentist, either with um, antibiotic coverage or some kind of some kind of uh, home remedy, or a lot of times people just want to know that they're um, they're going to be okay, and so uh, those things can be managed over the phone. So the first thing that's happened when you call your dental office is they will definitely triage you, spend some time finding out the nature of your problem, difficulty, also as I said, your your COVID nineteen status or non status. Of course, yeah, um, and and. And, and, and most of the time, stuff like that can be taken care of over the phone. Um, from time to time, it can't be. And, um, and the dentist may determine that the patient needs to be seen um, to, uh, to uh, do something about their problem, mm-hmm. and, and in which case they would, 
There, there are, as you said, on the um, BC Dental uh, Association's website, there are clinics that are open to take care of some emergency situations. Um, the, the thing that's important for us is, is to keep uh, people out of the uh, hospital waiting rooms, like the hospital emergency rooms. You just don't want them flooding the emergency rooms with dental problems. Right. If they can be handled over the phone, that's the best way. Um, Plus, we're also um, uh, we're also bound by uh, the fact that we need per- personal protection equipment as well. Quite, uh, it's really hard to uh, social distance when you're a dentist. Uh, right, you need to get closer. You need to get closer than six feet to your patient, and um, and uh, so we need. And and they see, they feel that diseases spread through droplets. So um, in the air, and so uh, we're uh, dentists and patients and staff are at risk of spreading the disease. So they want to do as little face-to-face as possible, and that's why the phone uh, triaging is so important. Yeah, on the phone, Dr. Ward, is is it possible, for example, you you were mentioning earlier that if uh, upon calling your doctor's office and explaining the nature of the pain, uh, if if the dentist is able to, for example, understands that whatever you, whatever's troubling you can be uh, alleviated by the use of antibiotics, can the dentist indeed prescribe an antibiotic by phone through you and your pharmacy again? Absolutely. Okay, so that's all handleable by phone. Yes, and that's actually uh, that's actually a really big one. So you can prescribe antibiotics and painkillers over the phone. Okay, and so it can all be it can all be done without having to ever uh, run into the patient. Now, now uh, once the antibiotics have been described and they've been take, uh, prescribed and they've been taken, um, the patient you know may a month later uh, the same problem may come up again. And depending on how, what the situation's like in a month, um, you may prescribe another round of antibiotics or a slightly different one. But yes, it can all be done over the phone. So so much of that can be taken care of without the patient having to go to the hospital or without the patient having to be physically seen. Right. I suppose, though, the good news here, Dr. Ward, this morning is that the the entire dental system isn't completely shut down. There are still provisions to accommodate people with real issues. Absolutely. And as I said, one of the serious emergency issues uh, where it's life-threatening, of course, you'd need to go to the emergency room. That is, if you can't breathe or if you're bleeding uncontrollably or if you have pain that can't be treated with, uh, with drugs. But most of the other situations can be, um, can be handled over the phone. And, and there is a list of clinics on the BC Dental Association's website. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, there, there's about, a, I think, about 100 in the province. Uh, they're scattered all over the province, and those are the offices that have the personal protective equipment. Uh, most of us have uh, donated a lot of our uh, masks, gloves, and whatever other equipment we have to the, uh, to the hospital so that they can, they can do their job, and, uh, and those are essential to us being able to work. So these clinics that are open usually have the equipment, and they're able to take care of emergencies. Um, if the dentist... If the dentist, if their dentist recommends that, and and that would be the thing to do first, is go through your dentist so that they can actually discuss your situation with you. And if they feel that you do need to be seen, then they can recommend a clinic for you and uh, um, and recommend that you go be seen. But as I say, most of the time it can be handled over the phone. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, the, our dentists uh, are in Sapperton in U.S. Minster, literally across the street, Bruce, from Royal Columbian Hospital. Yep. Uh, and uh, uh-huh. they, I know they made a donation of PPEs to the folks across the street, as, as, have, many, right. as have many other dentists and dental practices across the province. 
and it's left us without them. Um, and you got to know that for dentists, you know, we're so used to actually taking care of people. And one of the most frustrating things about this whole situation is that we, we can't physically take care of our patients. And that's actually very troubling to a lot of us because, you know, we got in this business so that we could take care of people's problems. And yeah. To be unable to do that is very frustrating. I believe you. No question. A quick question before I let you go, and I appreciate you getting up early to do this with us this morning. I I wanted to talk about that dental conference that happened. We hosted a dental conference here in Vancouver, I guess about a month or so ago, uh, in which the COVID-19 virus was uh, found to be present. Uh, Has everyone uh, since that conference recovered? Is everybody okay now? Yes. It's been uh, it's been over a month, and yes, it ha- they have. Well, that's good. So there's no more um, no more self isolation for the people who attended. Everything is uh, provincial health officers dealt with that, and uh, yeah, it, it 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 we passed on from that. Oh, good. Well, it's it's important that people understand yeah. that it's 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 welcome news. So again, just the takeaway from the conversation for anyone listening this morning, Doctor Ward, with dental issues or concerns. Call your dentist office, and uh, they will they'll they'll prioritize uh, what you, what your problems are and give you advice, a medication if necessary on the phone, and if it's really urgent, they'll connect you with someone who can see you. Absolutely, and the um, the website for the BC Dental Association is bcdental.org. And if you don't have a dentist, that would be a good first place to start is going on that website and looking for a clinic that will accept an emergencies. And again, you'll be vetted over the phone. And if they determine that you need to be seen, they'll they'll uh, make arrangements. That's a great list. I've got all all the dental emergency treatment clinics across the province on one page, friends. It's at bcdental.org. Our thanks this morning to Dr. Bruce Ward. Commissary Connect is at the intersection of those two things. And with us this morning to tell us more is the CEO of Commissary Connect. Sarb Mund is on the line. Good morning, Mr. Mund. Morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Sarb. Welcome to the program. Tell us a little bit more about Commissary Connect, please. Sure. Uh, well, Commissary Connect is a network of commercial kitchens in Vancouver. Uh, we started about seven years ago, um, basically getting companies to start off uh, in a space where they can uh, you know, really quickly get a, a proof of concept going, be able to scale that company all the way up until selling into the major retailers. Uh, we have three sites, the third one being the first provincial food hub, so really integral to the whole local food uh, community and basically the local food strategy for the province. Sarb, what's a food hub? Uh, the Law Street facility that we have is a food hub. Basically, it, it really does tie in all the parts that you need to get a food company started. Um, it is tied into uh, innovation. Uh, it is tied into having companies uh, access to shared use uh, equipment, and we're proprietary. we have uh, technology that is proprietary to be able to have companies uh, only pay for what they need right. and really be able to scale as quickly as they can. Oh, okay. I had a cousin who a few years ago was a partner in a food truck. And every morning before they they, they would take the truck out to wherever they were going to set up, usually around Burrard and, uh, and uh, um, down in uh, the business section down there by the SkyTrain station, uh, they would yeah. go to a kitchen uh, and they would prepare in large bulk a lot of the stuff that they would cook in smaller portions throughout the day is that do, do people who have food trucks use the commissary uh, kitchen 
Yes, that's exactly it. So we may have actually known your cousin. Um, so typically what would happen is if you're owning a food truck, you would need a commissary, so a back-end kitchen where you can prepare your food. Exactly. And that's the place, that, that's the place get, that gets licensed. That's the place where you make your food, prepare your food. And basically every food truck at the end of the day goes back to a commissary to unload and basically prep for the next day. So uh, that is essentially where we started six years or seven years ago was for the food trucks. And then eventually we start getting amazing brands that are, that are on the store shelves, and they all need the same level of food safety. So people now, uh, I know, for example, on your website, you have a picture of a woman who's, uh, who markets Whistler Elixir, which is a product that is sold in stores now. And she is a former client as well. So she got started with her now for sale in, at, at a supermarket near you uh, in a commissary connect kitchen. That's correct. That is correct. So we help companies get started and then really be able to scale up. So what we're starting to see now um, is, of course, I mean, there is a little bit of a problem. <laughs> I'm sure you're aware. No kidding. Uh, so, I mean, offices are closed. So a lot of our food trucks, unfortunately, are, are being affected. And then, of course, we have, um, you know, the catering gigs that are gone. So a lot of caterers will use a commissary connect kitchen. I suppose, so they yeah. Don't have kitch- yeah, because they don't have kitchens of their own. Uh, and even a lot of restaurants. I mean, if they need larger or more cold storage or more space, they'll have a membership at a commissary connect kitchen. They're able to do their prep there. So we're seeing a, a lot of people affected by what's happening now, which is... Uh, which is obviously unprecedented. Well, exactly. And, and you know, there are so many dedicated restaurateurs and hospitality industry types just casting around, just looking for anything, any way to try and just keep your head above water, just keep the enterprise alive so that when things start returning to normal, you'll be there for all of those people you know are dying to come back and go out and grab a bite to eat. So That's this exactly. this may be a bridging uh, opportunity for some Yes, of course. And we're going to see, I mean, a huge influx. As soon as everything's sorted out, I'm going to see a huge influx of people coming back in. I mean, there was, um, I mean, this has been a, a very strange year. I mean, the night market closed. I mean, this is essentially the time where we're starting to get our, a new batch of companies starting. So we have the night markets, the farmers markets. I sure. Mean, this, I mean, the summer, the food trucks are going right now. So, I mean, this is a really strange time that we're not seeing a lot of that, that flow because, I mean, of course, everyone's on hold. Right. And are the food trucks, by and large, just shut down like all, all of the other food service industry options? There are a few of them out, um, but um, with people working from home, I mean, there really isn't anybody at the offices that would stay in a lot of these food trucks. Sure. So, yeah, so we gave our, our members the ability to maybe step back for a month. We were freezing their memberships just so that we could mitigate any health, you know, and, uh, any, any spread of, of virus. I mean, really having people that are on the front lines in, in, in respect to food to be able to take that month off and understand what is actually happening with their business. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been, um, it's been challenging, but I mean, it's, I, I, we feel like from a, from a health standpoint, it was the most responsible thing to do. Well, of course you yeah, have very little option really there when you think about it. So Sarb, uh, talk to us a little bit about membership. You've mentioned the word membership a few times. Is that how you join or you, you begin uh, working uh, in tandem with the equipment available through Commissary Connect? That's correct. Yeah. So when they when they come over to Commissary Connect, so we basically get to understand them uh, as much as they get to take a look at the kitchen space. So we understand that where are they in their business model? Or are they able to get going right away? Uh, would they need a six month or a one year contract? And then essentially we bring them on, and then we we're very fortunate in the sense that we have we were one of the leaders in the industry. Uh, so we were able to create some technology that makes each of our kitchens pay per use. So in a normal commissary, in a normal space, uh, you'd have to pay a fixed cost. Here, if you're not using pieces of equipment, you don't pay for them. Okay. So um, that gives people, especially you know, with, with seasonality of food uh, of the food industry, they're not paying as much in their off season. So um, yeah, I mean, basically what happens is a lot of these companies will stay on for the whole year, be able to grow and then be able to scale uh, as they go without having to put a dollar in for capital. 
Interesting. So you pay for what you use, and that's that's the guiding concept uh, financially then. That's correct. And then, of course, you have the collated purchasing because you have a lot of these members in here buying a lot of the same stuff. Why not help them buy it together? And then how do we get their products into stores quickly? So it really is end-to-end supply chain here that we're working with. And I suppose also in the process of organizing a new enterprise and, and relating to food and kitchens, you must also deal with the realities of inspectors and standards and those sorts of things. I'm sure that you're uh, well-connected with the inspecting teams. Yes, we're, we're very closely aligned with Bank of Coastal Health and, of course, the Ministry of Agriculture. I mean, we're working very closely in being able to raise the level of food safety. So the third site that we have, which is the Provincial Food Hub, is the first um, shared youth HACCP site, I believe, in Canada. So what we're able to do is give the level of food safety that you need to, for a full-on production facility, but still have companies be able to make their products themselves as opposed to having to farm that out. But, yeah, I mean, if you're working at a commissary, I mean, chances are that commissary is getting inspected almost weekly especially in the on-season, because every time a new company comes in, an inspector will come in and inspect the whole site. So, ah. really, you know, the, the level of food safety at a commissary is, is, is great, and this model is quite new still. I mean, we were one of the first ones about seven years ago. I mean, now we're starting to see, uh, I mean, this is really where a lot of the companies will start. They'll start with a commissary as opposed to taking on a five-year lease somewhere to get a restaurant started. They'll typically start with a meal delivery service at a commissary. Ah, okay, and so uh, and uh, so, but they it, it's no uh, uh, no shortcut uh, in terms of food safety and and those inspection regimes. In fact, if anything, you because you deal with n- a number of clients, uh, as you say, when a new one comes in, everybody gets inspected because you're using a common space or a much common space. Correct? Oh yes, exactly. Yeah. So we've actually given our Vancouver Coastal Health offices a code to get in. So our kitchens are open twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. An inspector can literally come in, have their own code, go in and inspect the whole site whenever they want to. Interesting. I mean, that's on press. I mean, that's, that's not that's not how a normal restaurant would. Be. That's for sure. That's very rare. Our next guest is Brad McLeod. Mr. McLeod is the owner and managing partner of a very popular uh, fish and chips chain. It's Sea Lovers Fish and Chips, which, according to the website, is the best fish and chips in town. Brad McLeod, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Happy Easter. Well, the same to you, sir. I'm just looking at the website to see Lovers' uh, Best Fish and Chips in town. Locations everywhere from Abbotsford all the way to Edmonton, Brad, for crying out loud. And all of them on the website today saying closed for Easter. How long have most of those, if not all of them, have actually been closed? Um, well, all of our locations are open uh, other than this weekend, except with the exception of our West Kelowna location. Uh, they've been closed for about a week and a half now uh, with some staff issues, uh, staff shortages and stuff like that. Okay. So they're working at getting things back together to reopen, but all other 11 locations have been open all the way through. Okay, and again, from the website, all Sea Lovers restaurants will be open for takeout only. How's business in the wake of, I mean, obviously with nobody coming in to sit down and have a fish and chips and a beer or two, uh, that's definitely cutting into the cash flow. Uh, is the takeout business enough to keep you afloat, Brad? Uh, the way it's looking right now, yes, with... Um, we are able to stay afloat and keep going. We're running about uh, 50, 50 to 60 percent decreases in sales, uh, but with adjustment of staff and uh, our operating hours, uh, we will make it through this. Um, we've got great support from our customers um, that have been around for many years. Uh, we always had a, a large takeout uh, following uh, 
through the year. So that's made it work a lot better for us than most restaurants. Okay. And uh, in terms of staff levels, again, the front of the house is not an available option. How much of, no. your, how much of your kitchen staff have you been able to retain, Brad? Uh, probably about 50-60% of our kitchen staff we've been able to keep. And uh, so all of our front of the house is gone now. Of course, it is laid off. Yeah. With kitchen staff, how are you managing to keep most people employed, working fewer hours, or have you had to just let some kitchen staff go? We we let some. Uh, we've laid off some, and then we've kept uh, most of the staff at a, a full time basis because it's it's hard to uh, balance that out with the availability of the money from the government to the number of hours they're going to get. So we've juggled it and worked with our staff uh, to work through who would stay on and who would would go off. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the the money from the government, Brad, because that was going to be my next question. Yesterday, uh, late yesterday afternoon, the House uh, passed the $73 billion business relief package, which combined with other federal programs already underway, and we've seen millions of Canadians apply for the CERB in just the past few days. The question to you, though, the business person, is do you think this uh, relief funding will be, be will make enough of a difference um it's hard to say the biggest trouble is going to be the time factor when that money flows yeah uh that's the trouble is is a lot of a lot of restaurants don't have the ability to run this long without that cash flow and that's the difficult part because we still don't know when we're going to see that money and that that's going to be the biggest struggle out there is are they going to survive till those funds come available and this this would this allow you to now because you mentioned already that you've had to lay off some staff and I'm noticing some of the airlines for example Brad saying that if we are able to get this funding from uh, the house and this emergency uh, package uh, some of the airlines are talking about hiring back thousands of workers that kind of thing albeit at 75 percent of their usual wage but I'm thinking these days 75 percent of something is a whole lot better than zero percent. Yes, it is. Um, for us, yes, we're looking at that. We're still waiting to watch what the exact details are sure. to make sure every location qualifies and and so on. But our, our we have already brought some employees back uh, because of hearing that news. Uh, it's enabled us to to be able to adjust our schedules and work things out better to serve our customers because we know that's coming. Again, though, it's a timing issue. Now, we're lucky uh, with the CERB, the sort of personal package. uh, We've seen literally millions of people, and I probably, you and I both know people, Bruce, or Brad, rather, this week who have applied for uh, those emergency uh, packages. And some people have already started to receive uh, automatic deposits in their accounts. So that turnaround this week for many has been incredibly quick. Yes, yes, that has. And now that that is finally flowing, uh, hopefully we'll see the same thing with the wage subsidy as well. So are you hopeful that, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about a similar problem uh, in the States, uh, altogether different jurisdiction, but again, it's gobs of money being filtered through the system down to uh, the businesses that uh, matter and, and getting the money to them in, in a timely fashion. You mentioned that your restaurants, Brad, qualify did you you have 12 restaurants did you have to apply 12 times or were you were you able to apply once as an enterprise well no first they don't even have the information out yet to apply because it just passed yesterday right so we we don't even have any information on how or what or when we're going to be able to apply 
Uh, and each one of our locations um, are independently owned. And that, so each location is its own business because they're franchise locations. Okay. So they will all have to apply individually, each one as their own business entity. Uh, but we don't even know the detail. We don't even know when we'll be able to apply for it. That's, that's what I'm saying is the unknown for the business owner is the biggest part. We talk about these things out there, but we don't even know what the details are going to be and when we're going to be applying and when we'll see the money. Right. So it's very hard to judge that. Exactly. I, I assume that you're approaching this, though, with, a, with, a, with an optimistic attitude, full of hope that it's going to resolve uh, fairly quickly. Uh, oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Our, our plan is to go through with that. Uh, our plan is to go all the way through this. We've, since day one, all of our franchisees have committed to staying open, uh, following all the guidelines, make sure we're doing social distancing. We've sure. relayed out all of our locations uh, each one accordingly to do it. And uh, we're committed to go through this and make it through and come out on the other side. Uh, Brad, bit of a change of pace for you here. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Ian Tustinson from the Restaurant Association yesterday quoted widely as, as asking uh, customers, those of us who still like to uh, uh, enjoy food that we didn't have to cook ourselves, that, that he's making a point about the middleman. He's saying that in many instances, restaurateurs would appreciate a call rather than to uh, skip the dishes or a DoorDash or one of those Uber Eats type operations, calling the restaurant directly the point being that the commission taken by the delivery services is a significant bite into what is already a, a, a pretty lean uh, cash flow machine uh, did you did you note that uh, invitation to call directly and what did you make of it uh, well we we don't deal with any third party um, uh, delivery companies because of that fact right there's not there's not enough money in the restaurant industry. Uh, to be able to sustain that and the third party delivery services, the, they take between 20 and 30% right. off the top and it's not sustainable. It's not, um, it, it doesn't work. It's, it's, it's something that's come out. It's, uh, I don't know how long it's going to be around or how it's going to work, but restaurants can't survive giving 20 to 30% off the top, up to a delivery service. It just, it, it won't be sustainable. Especially and also we don't have control over who is delivering and handling our product. We're giving it up to an unknown. So we do not, uh, we do not partake in any of the third party delivery services. Well, you're lucky, of course, being in the fish and chips business, because yeah. that's very much a, a takeout. Oh, well, let's just call up the place and we'll go down and pick up some fish and yeah. chips. That's, that's kind of the standard operating procedure for a lot of clients, right? <laughs> and you mentioned your prime concern is literally the same one we all have, whether we're in business or just trying to get through this is how long is this thing going to last? Yeah, definitely, Sterling. That's the, the big F, and I don't know if anybody knows those answers uh, yet, but for the restaurant industry, um, it's just when things can go back to being able to serve our customers on a regular daily basis. And we're hearing the big unknown. That's right. And we're hearing, you know, it's 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 uh, it's unnerving in some ways, Brad, because we're hearing about different dates from different parts of the city. For example, the cities of Toronto and Calgary have basically canceled absolutely everything until June thirtieth. And you know, the the dates keep they seem from this distance, particularly to be getting further and further away to the point where there is some expectation of of normal uh, activities and so on. I guess 
guess that's probably, it is the big unknown. Do you have any kind of uh, cutoff date in your mind or your business plan beyond which it really is going to represent trouble? Um, I think if we go past June, um, you're going to see a lot, a lot of small businesses, restaurants and others that won't survive. Um, we're in it for the long haul and with what we're doing in takeout, we will survive through the end of this, however long it goes. Sure. But if we go past June and we don't start reopening some businesses, um, they won't reopen. There's there people will not be able to go past June or July. I think you'll see retail stores and small restaurants just. They just can't do it. Well, you know, and unfortunately, even as this pandemic actually began to take hold here in Vancouver, we're talking now back to February. Uh, during the Lunar New Year, we saw some Chinese restaurants here in the city of Vancouver that normally Brad would have been packed every day during the Lunar New Year. That's when everybody goes out to, to dine and celebrate. And they were experiencing 85% plus vacancies. And some of those restaurants, even then, we knew weren't going to make it. Oh, yeah, definitely. When you see restaurants with drops of 85 90% in sales, they can't hold on long. With the rents that they pay, when you get large restaurants with large dining rooms or even small ones in Vancouver, the rent they pay monthly is, is, is way too much for anyone to survive without proper revenue coming in. They just won't last. Right. And uh, your restaurants, and I note, again, I'm back on sealovers.com and uh, looking at all the locations, uh, Horseshoe Bay, Edmonton, North Van, Vernon, Chilliwack, Kamloops. You're all over the place, but you're not particularly in the high rent district in any one of them, are you? No, we're not. And that's by plan. Yeah. We, you, There's not the money to be made in the restaurant industry in high rent areas. It's just not sustainable. Uh, the margins aren't aren't good enough to be able to pay the kind of rents that they cost in these high rent areas. And what about taxes? I know that on top of, of high rents and all the rest, and normally any enterprise of, of any kind is required to pay taxes. How is the, what's the taxation like in the hospitality biz? Um, you've got property taxes that just keep going up and up and up for, for anyone in, in the business side of what you pay for commercial properties. And everybody in retail or restaurant, uh, their, their leases are based on what's called triple net. So when property tax goes up, we pay it directly to our, through our landlord. But sure. as property taxes go up, um, costs go up. I mean, it, it's our costs are going up all over the place, whether it's rent, property taxes, uh, we've liquor tax, you got provincial sales tax, of you've course. got GST, you've got all those payroll taxes, the new, the new MSP here in BC tax uh, for businesses mm-hmm. where we were double paying last year for That's that right. tax. So, um, it just, it just adds up, up and up and up and up. And there's very little margins for restaurants. And when revenues drop, uh, restaurants will close. Now, I wonder, Brad, because we've seen some uh, some movement on the part of the banks and other major lending institutions to work with both private and business partners with respect to deferring payments and and those sorts of things. You know, they're not going to go away. They'll they'll still be there, and you'll pay interest on the deferral, but they will give you a six months, perhaps, a breathing space to get reorganized and back to addressing those payments. What about on on the side of rents? 
rates. We've talked about this a lot from a, a tenant landlord perspective uh, on an individual uh, rental situation. What about a business enterprise? Can you negotiate with your landlord? And is a business landlord eligible for the same consideration, say, from the province of BC that a private landlord would be? Yes, no. Business landlords, there are no government programs that I know of. Um, You can try and negotiate with your landlord, but you've got to sign lease. You're you're asking to renegotiate something that's already been negotiated. Right. And of course, no one had seen this coming, so no one had any clauses like this in any leases uh, and that. So it's a one-off basis, but the most you're going to get from a landlord is you might get a deferral uh, for a short period, but you still have to pay that. And if you've got a restaurant that's closed or doing only 10 or 15% of its normal sales for three or four months. Um, that's not going to uh, be able to survive that because when you reopen, you're going to have three or four months back rent to pay and you had trouble paying the rent to begin with. Yeah. And that it's, it's not going to go away. Uh, Brad, the other the other disturbing element to this whole picture is we're starting to see stories now of suppliers. And of course, as any restaurateur knows, you're absolutely dependent on the supply chain for the quality of your food and the consistency uh, that you're able to provide your customers. Uh, this, when, when you see uh, farmers uh, destroying milk and eggs and others because there's simply no demand for them, they, they produce at a certain level expecting that most of what they produce will be snapped right up well it isn't happening and they're being caused in some cases to actually destroy their products what's happening to the supply chain brad um our supply chain we have not had any troubles with we've been lucky our suppliers have uh, worked with us and uh, we haven't any trouble with any of our supply chain issues uh so far but i know for farmers and anyone doing fresh products like dairy and produce and so on and so forth, judging where you're going to be at from one day to the next with sales and your your crop. You can't you can't slow down your crop. You can't change your crop and turn true. it around on a dime. And yes, there's going to be great losses there and we're going to see hardships in those areas too. So uh, it's it's tough to it's a tough question to ask as as I let you go, but um uh, how optimistic are you, Mr. McLeod, about the future of your enterprise and your industry? Um, for us, we will get through this. We are all determined that we will get through this. And I believe the restaurant industry is the same. They will get through this, but the longer this goes on, the less restaurants we're going to see out there. And what I ask people is support your local restaurants direct, contact your restaurants direct, do pick up, do delivery with your restaurants direct, not through third parties. All right. That's we a- can't afford it. We can't afford to carry on this way with third parties yeah, in yeah. this situation interesting messaging very consistent with the uh, with what ian tostenson and others in the restaurant industry are, are reminding uh, clients and those of us who are in love of our food to, to just to pick up the phone and call your restaurant and they'll take it from there yes we will new ways of keeping kids learning while of course trying to maintain the provincial and federal government's directives for social distancing to say nothing of well educational standards that's a tough package to put together particularly if on top of all of this you're working from home here to provide well 10 tips for online learning for parents is amber popo who is president and ceo of the self-design learning foundation amber thanks for joining us and good morning happy Easter. 
Good morning, Sterling, and happy Easter to you. Thank you so much for inviting me to your show this morning. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, and I think I speak on behalf of an awful lot of parents. All the help that we can we can get is is really valuable right now. Have, are you hearing from parents, Amber, just sort of randomly calling up or sending you emails going, basically, help? <laughs> but you know what, Sterling? Yes, we have. Um we are an online school, so self-design learning community, we've been around for 20 years, and we operate uh, an online school for 2,000 learners across the province every year. Okay. And um, in addition to our parents, who are actually, of course, used to working and, and uh, schooling their children at home, we have definitely fielded some calls and helped out uh, not just parents, but educators as well outside of our system and helping them navigate, like as you said, a, a completely uncharted area for many people. Well, you know, I want to get to those 10 tips uh, that you have provided to us, and it's on the website, too, friends, and we'll give you that address in a little bit. But as, as before we get to the tips and, and, and some attempt to focus and, and, and chart a course, I think that a, a lot of parents will feel, I think, somewhat relieved if, if you're able to say things like, well, I, I don't know. Uh, why don't we find out when you're confronted with someone uh, who uh, poses a question, you're, you're trying to conduct a class and or, or you know provide some instruction and you hit a speed bump it's not it's not a bad thing to go i don't know let's find out or let's let's do this together mm-hmm, absolutely and you know it's really an interesting thing you know going back to your your question about whether we're getting questions about about schooling and, and the transition to online or at home or remote schooling as we call it and mm-hmm. I think the first thing is is that rather than focusing on moving school online or trying to replicate a traditional classroom in an online or remote environment, like at home, that the focus should really just be moving towards focusing at remo- moving it to home, where there's so many opportunities to engage real-life experiences and where technology is used to engage um, students and to enhance education. And I think then there would be a lot less pressure on parents and educators um, through this really quick transition. And yes, you're right. You know, part of it is saying, well, you know what? I don't know. And where can I find resources to find out? Yeah, and I think a lot of parents are probably just flat out frustrated, Amber, because they don't know, because it's been a while since we were in school and, and methods have changed, techniques have changed, the information, the facts are still the same, the math still does the, you know, the problem can still be worked out, but the approach is pretty dramatically different in some cases. And and frankly, some parents find themselves almost embarrassed by simply not knowing what the heck's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what we did is we, um, at Self-Design Learning Community, we have uh, 185 BC certified teachers we work with every year. And so what we did is we consulted with those 185 teachers and we asked them, you know, what advice would you give parents out there right now who aren't used to working with their children at home in a schooling environment or remote learning environment? And we did, like you said, we created a list of parents that offers what we would consider simple ideas to set the stage for optimal learning at home Mm -hmm. and hopefully take some of the pressure off of them, Um, you know, especially when it comes to trying to, um, you know, put the pressure on parents to all of a sudden come up with ideas to, to help educate their children. Well, let's let's take a look at that list uh, list of uh, top ten tips for parents, and 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 I'll give you I'll give you the headline, Amber, and then you can flesh out the story if you will. So, sure. tip tip number one: understand that relationship is important and sets the stage for learning. Yeah, absolutely. The most crucial 
part of remote or home learning is the relationship. And by that, what we mean is that parents and educators aren't alone in this. And to make remote learning as um, good as possible for your child is to have this relationship established or this partnership with your educator as a parent. So what that means is ensuring that you both are on the same level as to what the expectations are and that you both are helping each other through the process. So parents and teachers are connecting on behalf of the students. Absolutely. Now, now tip number two, recognize that learning happens all the time. Absolutely. I, I feel strongly that um, we've been traditionally told that learning happens from nine to three in a classroom led by a teacher. And that's what we're used to. And so for a lot of parents, when they get this, you know, this idea that all of a sudden kids are going to be learning at home, that that's what it needs to look like. Right. And at Self-Design, we really focus on the idea that learning happens everywhere all the time. There's opportunities that exist in simple things. And real life learning is really important. And so everything from, you know, learning how to bake a cake to uh, mapping out a new route to the grocery store. uh, There's things like video chats, online games, even if you want to bring in technology. But Mm -hmm. learning happens all of the time. That's good. Good stuff to know. Tip number three, learn your children's patterns. It sounds kind of redundant because they're your kids and you're supposed to know, but not necessarily all the patterns, perhaps the ones you don't see at school, right? Absolutely. And, you know, as we're working through a time of great change, I mean, parents are obviously seeing this, but I feel that a lot of times children, especially young children, if you watch them, it looks like nothing's changed in their life. They're outside playing, you know, from a social distance perspective. But we feel that really strong children are feeling this, this, this self-isolation and this idea of not being able to play with friends. So it's really important during this time, again, to understand learning doesn't happen just between nine and three, that there's lots of opportunities, and also just to recognize the patterns that their child is exhibiting. So, you know, if they're feeling a little bit down or stressed out, you know, maybe not push a, a pencil and a math sheet in front of them. Maybe it's time to take a break and, and let them play. And play, of course, is an optimal learning um, activity. Amber, we made it up to tip number four, which is practice skills in areas of strength. Tell us more. Yeah, Uh, yes, of course. Um, Practice skills in areas of strength. So what does that mean? Well, it's it's asking yourself questions like, what does your child like to do? What's the strongest way that they gain information? For example, they like reading, uh, being online, learning from books. How do they prefer to express their understanding? So once they've learned something, do they use visuals? Are they writing? Do they like to speak about it? Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you give your, your, your child ownership and choice, and you let them choose topics, um, you know, how long they like to spend on a topic, how much. And what that does, again, is that whole idea of taking responsibility for their learning. And also that puts in perspective a little bit about that partnership that you have with, with your educator. And, uh, okay, we'll talk more about the educators and the degree to which they are involved in this process going forward. But I want to stick with with the top ten. And on a beautiful Easter morning like this one, tip number five (laughs) is just bang on the money here, Amber. It says, get outside and into nature. Absolutely. And, of course, observing the social isolation and distancing. So we're doing that (laughs) carefully these days. But, yeah, Absolutely. This is the time to take your child outside or your children outside and to what we would call observe deeply. And that is have them look around, point out things, let them see things. And, for example, watching a squirrel poke its nose out, asking questions about that, watching a bird chase a worm, 
or even just watching the sunrise. Mm. And these things can all be done, again, from, from a social distancing perspective, but also in a way that's really deeply meaningful for the child. I like tip number six, too, Amber. Immerse yourself in, in yourselves, plural, as in the family unit here. Immerse yourselves in good stories. Lord knows there's enough of the other variety available these days. That's a very practical tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listen to and share good stories. You know, you want to read them, you can draw them, you can act them out. Um, you know, all, all happens in a good book. You know, reading a good book together out loud, have your child read it out loud. Um, older children and teens might, you know, enjoy novels or book series or even podcasts or audiobooks. And they can listen to those independently. It doesn't always have to be shared. Right. Uh, tip number seven is don't confuse quality with quantity. What does that mean? Well, that means you, know, you need to sprinkle focused learning um, that time throughout the day. So, again, learning doesn't just happen to between 9 and 3. Right. And so, you know, make sure there's lots of times for breaks, um, for play, for virtually connecting with peers. We don't want to forget about the, the social aspect of, of, you know, what's important for children. And it's also okay to schedule, um, you know, schedule things lightly and maybe not have a, a schedule every minute of the day. And, you know, understanding that, you know, as, as hard as it is sometimes to think about, but boredom is a gateway to curiosity. So when kids are bored, they'll often seek out ways to engage themselves. And, and again, remember that play is an optimal way of learning. Interesting stuff. Have your ch- tip number eight, have your children set goals, then make them manageable. Yeah, and that also goes back to the idea of allowing children to be part ownership or, or own their education. So have them write down their goals. Uh, into smaller steps or pieces, uh, divide the pieces of paper, for example, into four and write things like, you know, body, heart, mind, and spirit. So remembering that all of those four parts make up learning. And then help your kids set those those goals and then attain them for themselves. That's a, that's a good uh, character-building stuff now, isn't it? Tip number nine, use computers as tools to expose your child to new ideas and practice skills. Mm-hmm. So look at computers as a way of, um, or technology, for example, as a way to enhance learning. So you want to make sure that you integrate it and you balance learning time. So yes, of course, learning online is is an important component, especially as we live in the age of the internet. Absolutely. But also remember that um, with with the internet (laughs) is that you need to monitor your child's activity. So especially depending upon their age, you know, make sure that if they are using online community spaces or resources, that safety is incredibly important Mm -hmm. and uh, that they need to be able to um, play and and explore safely. But just remember that you're keeping an eye on that. And, of course, older children can play a more active role in curating resources and developing their own media literacy as well. And be helpful to younger siblings in the process too, right? Uh, Yes, of course. And tip number 10 uh, for parents uh, who are struggling with all of this online teaching responsibility, tip number 10 be gentle with yourself. Yes. That's a really important piece. Again, this is an extraordinary change for many people. As parents, especially those that are trying to work at home and have a whole bunch of kids at home and, and trying to school, it's really important for you to, again, look at this as, as an opportunity rather than a challenge, but that there will be bumps, and that's okay. And, you know, don't forget that, again, there's a teacher there to support you through your through the changes in your child's education. 
So you uh, have been doing this, as I mentioned, for a couple of dozen years with a remote lo- location. You mentioned working with over 180 teachers across the province. We now have a situation where the education, the educators of British Columbia are also not going to work because they can't. So they are interacting with their children. Are you finding from the sidelines as an observer, are you finding uh, a sort of an energy coming from educators to really get that uh, online involvement? and connection going at a fairly high rate? Yes. You know, from my experience, educators, teachers in in BC, regardless of whether they're in the independent system or in the public system, are very passionate people. And they genuinely uh, care for their their children and their students, and they're looking for ways to to move this as fast as they can. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, the... The thing is, is remote learning or, or online learning is significantly different, and many of them don't have that experience. So we have been, again, helping as best we can, providing them with some ideas and some, some quick tips as well. Yeah, I wanted the one other point that I think I would like you to address uh, ever so briefly is this whole notion of, you know, relating to the the education experience. And I got to get I got to get my kids up to speed. I got to keep them up with their peers and all the rest of it. So in some way, there's an urgency to try to recreate the classroom experience in your home. And that doesn't sound like it's going to end well. As I said, the the interesting thing about online learning and for us is that we've been doing this for 20 years and it's, you know, it's an art and science to to get everything all aligned. And to try to say to move a school, for example, online in in a matter of weeks is is pretty doggone hard, if not impossible. Hi, it's Shauna. And I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan. And I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.